and going through the New Testament. And today uh, is our one shot at James. And so James is a great book. There's lots of great passages. I'm preaching on something I don't think I've ever preached from this particular part of James. And so we get to look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. And here is what James has to say. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. And the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather on this Thanksgiving weekend, and we do give you praise for the ways in which you have made yourself known to us. Lord, as we enter into this season of Advent, we are aware that there are many things for which we are joyful, and Lord, that there are many things which cause us pain. And we bring all of that to you this morning, knowing, Lord, that you can redeem all. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Well, it's not hard to kind of know what exactly it is we're going to talk about today after having read through the passage. It begins with this phrasing of be patient and then says patience again and patience again and endurance. And so kind of an enduring patience. That's really what we're going to be looking at today. And it's important to see that clearly uh, we have always been a people who have struggled with patience, right? I mean, we see it here. Uh, we see it and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience. Uh, we see it when Paul says that, uh, that the church needs to clothe itself in kindness and compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience, right? And if Scripture is continually telling the people of God that they need to be patient, it probably means that they're not very good at being patient, right? And, and of course, it's not just like it was the people 2,000 years ago. We've continued to struggle over the years with patience. I, uh, I ran across this quote by uh, John Calvin, who always seemed like he had all of his ducks in a row. Uh, but here's what he says about impatience. He says, I have not so great a struggle with my vices, great and numerous as they are, as I have with my impatience. My efforts are not absolutely useless, Yet I've never been able to conquer this ferocious wild beast. Isn't that a great definition of patience or this great kind of analogy? It is a ferocious wild beast. It is hard to tame impatience. We are not a patient people. And while certainly impatience has been something that we've wrestled with for a long time, it would be hard to argue, it seems to me, that we don't struggle with it even more now, primarily because of the simple fact that it's hard to cultivate patience in a world in which you can get everything almost as quickly as you want it. 
Whenever the holiday season comes along, I'm always reminded, oftentimes when I go into a department store, I'm always reminded of that thing that we used to call layaway. You remember? This is what makes me start to feel old, but remember layaway, right? Where you would go and you would have an item and, and, and you didn't have the money for it, right? This is my recollection as a kid. And so they would go take it back into some kind of dark place and it would be sitting there. And then you would go in and, and you would maybe make little payments. And then once you had all the money and you had paid for it, then you would receive the item. What a concept. But you had to wait, right? And in a, in a time of credit cards, right, where you just use that card and then you get it immediately, uh, it's a very foreign concept for most of us today, this sense of waiting to actually get something until you have the money for it. But of course, there's lots of things, right, that inhibit us from cultivating patience, right? Amazon Prime, right? 24 hours, you can get almost anything that you want, right? We talked before about high-speed internet, how that changes things. What about the Chick-fil-A drive through line, right? I mean, even just that, right? You could be there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which, by the way, how they still have so many customers at 3 in the afternoon. That is, what is that, late lunch, early dinner? What's going on? Just a milkshake? It's bizarre. But no matter how long that line is, it's like in a moment, all of a sudden, there's your food and drink, right? And so there is no sense where we have to cultivate patience. It is hard in a world that tries to just get you everything immediately. It is hard to work the muscle of patience. Now, of course, we could say, well, why do we even need it? If we can get everything in a hurry, it's really not necessary. But the truth is, if you begin to think about what we said at First Timothy about wanting to be a people who are about life that really is life, as you begin to think of this, as people have said, there are few things Right? That bring us life that really is life, that don't require a certain amount of patience. Right? One of the great ways, of course, that we see that is in relationships. As followers of Jesus, we're called to love God. We're called to love our neighbor. We're called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to not grumble against them, as James says. But there is this great sense here that if you want to be in, in a good, deep, self-sacrificial, meaningful relationship with others, then you will have to become a person of patience. Because the more that you love someone, the, the closer that you get all of those things, all that deepening, it always requires a certain amount of patience, doesn't it? I, I, I want to really talk about, I wanted to talk about patience in relationships a lot. That's not the direction that the sermon ended up going. But I want to bring up this. I don't know if I'll bring it up in the other services, but I'm going to bring it up here, which is in that book, TechWise Family, that I, uh, that I talked about a couple times. It brings up this great amount of research that says if you want to have a meaningful conversation with somebody, it takes at least seven minutes the first seven minutes, you have, to, you have to be with them that first seven minutes so you can talk about, you know, this or that, and that you can then actually just be in the midst of uncomfortable silence at times. And it says, research says, that if you don't, that if in the midst of that seven minutes you look at your device or you look over at a television and you get distracted in that way, that the seven minutes has to start all over again. So there's this great sense, right, that if you want to actually engage in deeper conversation, if you want to grow relationships, then we have to make sure that we are okay and we can be patient with people in the midst of not having something to do and just simply be present with them. What a concept. Patience. But this week, as I kept kind of looking at this passage, and especially the thrust of the passage I realized that in many ways, what I wanted to talk about this morning, what I felt called to talk about is not just patience in relationships, 
But what does it mean to be patient in suffering? What does it mean to be patient in the midst of grief and struggle and confusion? You see, when James is writing to this church or to these people, he is writing to a group of people who are wondering where God is. There is injustice that they are, uh, that they are on the receiving end of. There are questions, there are confusions. They were wondering where God was, where is Jesus? He's supposed to be returning. And so they had all of this angst and all of this pain and all of these questions and all of this confusion. And in the midst of all of that, James is telling them that they need to be patient. So the question for us this week as I've been wrestling with this is what does it mean for us to understand how we can be patient in our suffering and our pain? You know, for the longer that I've been a pastor and just kind of live, one of the things, of course, that you realize is when you're a kid, the holiday season is always just full of happiness and joy, right? And, and, and there's all these great songs and there's gifts. And by and large, for most of us, when you're a kid, it's just, it's, just, it's just wonderful. But of course, the older that we get, the more we also begin to see the struggle of this particular kind of season. As Scott, Pastor Scott said in his prayer, We have times when our widows or widowers for the first time are going through a holiday season without their loved one. We see uh, uh, broken families. I'm oftentimes reminded of this. I was reminded of it again this past holiday season where, you know, children have to decide, are they going to go and be with their father? Are they going to be with their mother, right? There's a, that's a part of the struggle of this, of this season. There is real grief and pain and struggle that this kind of season also begins to bring up. And the question is, How do we approach that grief and that pain? And are we able to do so with an enduring patience? And what does that even look like? Research has begun to show that Americans are growing less resilient and less able actually to endure and to be patient in the midst of their suffering. In fact, what it says oftentimes is that we tend to go from just a small amount of frustration to crisis mode. That there is no longer or rarely do we see what they call kind of the psychic middle ground. Does that make sense? This, this middle ground between, you know, just a small frustration and crisis where you are struggling, where you are in pain, but you are here. You're not necessarily going over to crisis. It's clearly more than just a small thing, but you're able to simply kind of sit in the midst of this pain and this suffering. Tim Keller says that that psychic middle ground is what we've oftentimes called patience. Enduring patience. So if we live in a society where patience is not cultivated and where there seems to be a lack of a middle of enduring patience, how do we cultivate it ourselves? How do we, as followers of Jesus, grow in our ability to be able to suffer well? James brings up this analogy of a farmer Now, Palestine, which is a pretty dry place, there's really just two main kind of wet seasons. There's the early rains and the late rains. And so a farmer has to learn how to be patient with those two seasons. If the farmer decides he's going to grow impatient and begin to kind of plant the seed too quickly, then the ground will be too dry, too hard, and the crop will not come in well. If the farmer wants to harvest too soon before the second rains have come, 
then the, the crops will not be able to grow to their fullest kind of potential, if you will. And so the farmer has to wait. Now, he waits with expectancy. That's what we talk about a lot during the Advent season. He, he's able to till and do some of those things to get the ground ready, right? He's, he's, he's able to make sure that he has the harvesters whenever the, the crops finally come, that if he needs it, a place uh, to be able to store those crops. He can wait with expectancy, but the farmer has to wait. There are these seasons, and they have purpose, and they are important, but the farmer simply has to wait. You cannot rush through it. As I was thinking about that and this farming and the importance of seasons, I was reminded again of, of, of the Wendell Berry books that I've been reading. I think I've shared this probably with many of you. I've kind of really gotten into to the, the novelist uh, Wendell Berry who talks a lot about uh, uh, Kentucky and farming back in the early 20th century. There's a lot of reasons why I love Wendell Berry. Beautiful prose, uh, character development, uh, his keen observation of human nature. But one of the things that I have most appreciated that I didn't realize that I kind of needed or kind of needed to be reminded of is how connected farmers, of course, are to the land. This makes sense. And how important different seasons are. Now, we know this, most of us intellectually. In the spring, of course, you plant your seed, you plant your crop, right? In the, in the summer, you, you can try to do some things, but mostly you're praying for rain and the right amount of sun. And nowadays, of course, we can water and irrigate and do those sorts of things. In the fall, of course, is when we harvest. And then in the wintertime, it has its own kind of purpose. The wintertime is when you fix your farming equipment and you, you fix those fences that you didn't have time to fix during the other three seasons. But, but even though it's bleak out, there's a specific purpose and meaning for that. One of the things that I've kind of begun to understand is that one of the unintended consequences of us not being season-oriented, and it's really hard for us. I mean, you can get a, a pumpkin latte in, in July, right? That doesn't make sense. And, 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 and Christmas stuff was up uh, in, in February, I think, 10 months ahead of time. I mean, I mean all these things, we, we become disconnected. And one of those unintended consequences of that is that we don't see our life in a sense of, of it being seasons. And there are lots of seasons. There are good seasons, but there are also difficult seasons. But those seasons have purposes. See, because seasons allow us to endure and to be present, and they remind us that the next season is going to come. Now, certainly, there are depression. Let me just say this. There are depression, things like that, that can last a lifetime. And there are particular griefs, to be sure, difficult tragedies that we will always have in our hearts and our minds, right? The pain may be less acute, but they will always be there. But by and large, for much of what we endure, there are particular seasons. And I think there is a power to naming our grief and our struggle in terms not of days, but of seasons. For one, it allows us, as I said, to simply be present. One of the things that I notice when I meet with people and that I've noticed even in myself is this pressure to feel like I need to move on. I need to quickly act as if everything is okay. I, I don't have time to kind of just sit in this particular season. And, 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 and when we feel like we should have already moved on and we haven't, then, then we tend to do things to try to move on. We, we act like everything's okay even when it's not. We, we drink just a little bit more than we used to in order to numb the pain. We, we say, yeah, let's watch one more uh, one more. Uh, net Netflix season. Let's do this as a way of distracting us. We're not fully present 
in the midst of that grief. Because we think we should already have been moved on because we don't see and we don't call it winter. We don't call it a season. Or there's also what I see, an immense pressure from external sources for us to just get over whatever it is that we may be struggling with, right? I know of a family who who's, uh, was going through the midst of a divorce and, and their parents had split up three months earlier, three months earlier, and the father is saying to the mom, well, why in the world are these kids, why are they still so sad? Why haven't they moved on? You see, if you don't allow yourself to say, this is a season to endure and this is a season for me to simply wrestle with this, then you will move on and you will never really be able to process that grief. But there's also a gift in calling it winter and calling it a season because what it means is that spring is coming. Because it is very easy in the midst of our grief and our pain to simply think, well, this is just the way it always is. This is the way it is always going to be. And when we begin to think about the farmer to which James is speaking, we begin to think about seasons. We begin to realize that both, yes, we are going to have to endure this. There is no quick way through this. This is simply a season of winter. And we realize that there is a spring that is on its way. So James says we need to begin to think about this. We need to think about if you want to endure patiently the suffering or the struggle or the grief or the confusion that you wrestle with, then there is a power in simply naming it for what it is, this season, this winter of our lives. But James also wants to make it clear that if we want to endure patiently, then we have to trust that God is actively at work even when we cannot see it. One of the problems that James uh, seems to be wrestling with, scholars tell us, is that you had a group of people who were tired of their suffering and had begun to perhaps lose trust that God is still at work. And so there was some rumblings of kind of a violent overthrow that they were just going to take matters into their own hands. We can't wait any longer. We don't know where God is. We don't know if Jesus is ever returning. We're going to take this into our own hands rather than waiting for the Lord to work. So one of the things that commentators say as we look at this, and I'm not sure that we always maybe make this connection, is that if we want to be patient, we also have to be humble. We have to be humble enough to believe that God is at work even when we cannot see him. That the God of winter is also the God of spring. And that oftentimes the spring is going on unbeknownst to us. Whenever I think about winter, both literally and figuratively, I almost always think back to the, the winter of, of 2012. I've talked about this uh, before in bits and pieces uh, with you all, but... You know, we had uh, a year or so before that, we had uh, gotten a new call to go to, uh, go to San Diego, right, which was fantastic. I mean, 70s, you know, we were about less than two miles, I think it was, from the beach. Um, it, was, it was glorious. Everything was wonderful. And then that organization, you know, it went, fell flat, and all of a sudden I was without a job and, or within weeks of being without a job. And, and, and we had two kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and Megan was about two months from giving birth to our third-born. I mean, it was all of a sudden a lot. And so we quickly found this interim position, you know, in western Pennsylvania in Grove City, town of 8,000 people. And, 
You know, we got there and, and, and we were glad to have a job, to be sure, but we didn't necessarily love the location if God had been curious about what we were looking for exactly. And we got there in September, and I kid you not, as I've said to you all before, the sun went down uh, at the end of September, and I am 99% sure we did not see it again until May. I mean, it's funny, when, when, when Indiana, when Hoosiers talk about how, how cloudy it is here, go to western Pennsylvania. That's cloudy. I mean, months and months. In fact, we have friends, actually, they're, they're ZPCers who, who are from Western PA who call it Mordor, right? It's just kind of, you know, Lord of the Rings, very dark. But what, what kind of crystallizes it for me, really, is, is what happened in the beginning of January when we'd been with, uh, uh, um, with Megan's family in Seattle and we'd flown back to Pittsburgh to, take a, to get ready for like an hour, 15-minute track north to where Grove City is and... We had decided, because we didn't want to mess with all of our uh, big coats, that we would put all of our coats in our suitcases so that you didn't have to worry about it. It was genius, right? Because I hate having a coat, and it's just a pain. It's fine. It it was a good idea until they lost our suitcases. And it was January in western Pennsylvania. It It was no more than 15 degrees. It may have been. In fact, I think it was single digits, and we were like without a coat. None of us had coats. We're like, okay, well, we'll just we'll get through this. And so we go, and we, uh, we go to the satellite parking, and we, we, we grab our vehicle, and we, and we start to go with in, in our van, and it's clear that something is wrong with the van. So we're on the on-ramp to get onto the interstate. We pull over, and we stop, and we think, oh, my goodness. We try to see if we can figure out what's wrong, and then we remember that I have absolutely no mechanical skills. And so, so we said, well, this isn't going to work. And so we call AAA, uh, and they're going to come out and tow us. And we call our good friends, John and Tracy Vogan, and they, they come down. They pick up the, uh, uh, Megan and, the, the, at that point, three girls, and, um, and they go off. And I wait for the tow truck driver, and he finally gets there. And I would really love to describe the tow truck driver, but it is not family friendly. Um, uh, but he was very colorful. We'll just say that. And it was a very interesting trip. And, and we went the circuitous route. I don't know why. I still don't know why we went the way we did. I thought for sure I would never see my family again. But, 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 but we got to Grove City to the mechanic, and we went to go get it off of the tow truck. And, and the van was stuck. The wheels had locked. We could not get it off. And so for, for, for nearly an hour and a half, this was around midnight by now, about an hour and a half we were sitting there trying to get this thing off remember I had no coat no gloves I was freezing I couldn't feel my digits I thought for sure one of them was going to break off at any moment and we finally took this chain and we put it around like this telephone pole that was there and we just kind of wrenched the thing off right it was a beautiful day and we got that off finally and we got home and we could continue right that was a $5,000 transmission fix $5,000 we did not have the starter over the next two weeks went out in my other car twice Uh, then we borrowed a van to try to give us some hope and say we're going to go to La Isla, our favorite Mexican restaurant. We were so excited. And then that car broke down on Interstate 80. I mean, it was a nightmare of a time. And you know what you do in those times, right? Pastors are really good in the midst of all that grief. You know what you do, right? You're just like, okay, seriously, here I am serving you, Jesus. Uh, Your people, we followed you all the way to San Diego. I don't want to bring that up, but if you remember how that didn't work out for us. And here I am continuing to try to do this and we're trying to be a good family and all of these things are happening. What in the world is going on? You've been in your own winter season like this. I'm sure that as soon as I talk about this, you can remember when things just seemed to pile up and you just kept thinking, really? How is this going to keep going? What else do you want to throw our way? Now, of course, in the midst of that winter season... What I sometimes saw, but oftentimes did not, was that God was still at work. 
God was still at work. That spring was literally and figuratively on its way. That the car and the van did finally get fixed. That, that the sun did finally come out. That we finally began to find a little community uh, in, in, in a place where we had been so isolated. That, of course, as I've said before, that Zionsville Presbyterian Church had begun to look for a senior pastor. I mean, I think our first interview was in the May of that year. So four months later, almost an actual season. But if you had asked me in January whether or not I'd be interviewing for a place that we would be for at least eight years or so, a place that we've grown to love, I'm not going to try to build you guys up, but I, I decent place that all that was happening but when I sat in the middle of this winter I had to decide whether I was going to be humble enough to actually trust that God was at work sometimes I was and sometimes I was not but if we want to be a people of patient endurance we have to believe that even though there is winter that there is a certain purpose perhaps to it and that God the God of spring is at work but as I was thinking about my own story and different seasons of winter and as I've thought through the opportunities that I've had to walk with many folks over the years within their own winter season the thing that stood out to me most this week was James connecting being a person of patient endurance not just with the prophets but with Job more specifically I mean almost every commentator that I read as I looked at this said Job like there are a lot of better examples in Scripture of what it looks like to be a person of patient endurance than Job. Job, to be sure, lived with much pain. Lost his livelihood, his home, his family. There is no question about that. But when you think about, well, if you had to bring up an example of patient endurance, my guess is that for most of us, at least, we would think about somebody who was just really, you know, almost just kind of sitting there piously and saying, oh, Lord, this is hard. It's true. There's much pain, but we trust in you. And just begins to sing almost hymn-like lullabies that say, well, we just believe that at some point things are going to get better and we're just going to, you know, we're just going to keep smiling. I don't know. We're just going to, we're just going to be in a good place. But then you start going through the book of Job and you begin to hear what he says. This is, these are just some excerpts that we kind of, that I kind of saw this past week here what he says he says things like does it please no not yet does it please you i realized that you were going to do that that was my fault my fault does it please you god to oppress me to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked or surely oh god you have worn me out you have devastated my entire household. 
Or he, being God, throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. Or, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Or, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. Or, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. You hear this Job, this one who James says, oh, if only you could be more like Job, who does this great job of, of patiently enduring his grief. But here is Job, and he is having at it. He is letting loose. He is telling God exactly what he thinks. And we might be prone to think, well, why in the world is this who we should be? What is the point of all of this? And it seems to be the point in many ways is this, that though Job is very honest with God, though Job had, lets him have it, all of those things, the one thing that Job never does is he never stops talking to God. He never stops engaging with God. He never stops being in relationship with God. That even though all of his lines that he says that they are not very reverential, they are not very holy, they would probably not be accepted up here right in a form of a prayer of ours. That Job refused to not continue to engage with God in the midst of of his pain and confusion and anger and grief. And I think in many ways, one of the things, if we want to begin to try to understand what does it mean for us to endure with patience our struggle and our strain and our pain, one of the things, quite frankly, that we should probably stop doing so much is being so doggone polite to God. See, one of the things that I see with great frequency when it comes to followers of Jesus trying to process their pain is that they put everything under a caveat when I see them. And it's a sense of, well, you know, I know that God's given me a lot and I understand that. And Well, I know that other people are having to endure so much and so, you know, I realize that, but I'm kind of in some pain over it. But I mean, I know that there are, are really other things and I should just be thankful and, and all of these things. And we get so caught up in the niceties of understanding how are we supposed to relate to God that we don't ever actually have a real conversation with God and then we wonder why our relationship with God seems to be somewhat shallow and why it's growing and being disconnected from God well it's because we've never actually expressed to God what it is that we are feeling we've never been able to express as Job has this sense of our agony and our pain and our confusion and only when we begin to do that only when we can be honest even if it doesn't seem reverential only then will we be able to understand what it means to be in a real relationship with God 
God. Only then will we begin to grow in patience. Only then will we begin to change ourselves. Only when we put ourselves in a position to be able to be honest. James pointing out Job is a gift to all of us and whatever, wherever we are for all of us as we go through these seasons of winter to know we can express these things freely to God and he can handle it and he will continue to embrace us in the midst of those questions and anger and pain. Because here's the other thing about Job. While Job, yes, was able to speak very honestly as we should be able to in a deep relationship. Job also held that intention with this remarkable faith. This week as I was kind of doing some research on this, I looked at something that Tim Keller had done. He pointed out Job 23. I'm not sure I've ever really focused on this passage at all. It's just three verses, 8 through 10, but I... I want you to see this, and I want you to understand that Job is still in winter. It's a long book. Things don't have any kind of spring until the end of the book. So here's Job in the midst of his winter, and here's what Job says. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find God. When he is at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Do you see what Job is doing there? Job has this remarkable amount of honesty here. He says, look, when I go look in the north, I don't see God. When I look to the west, there's no God there that I can see. When I go to the south, I can't see God there. When I look to the east, there is no God. He doesn't sit there and say, well, I, you know what? I see God even amidst all of this. I see God at work. I know he's, he's right there. No, he's very honest. And yet what he also says in this beautiful honesty is he says, even though I cannot see him, what I am going to trust to believe is that God still sees me. That God still in some way sees me, even when I cannot see him. And when this season of winter is over, I will look more like gold. In other words, in the midst of this suffering and going through this suffering and this pain, in that process, I will become more beautiful than I was before. Does it mean that you won't be beautiful with scars of the pain that you have endured? It doesn't mean that you won't ever feel pain again or that you'll forget that pain. But it does mean that Job, in the midst of his suffering, in the season of winter, he could both be honest about the reality of that season and also trust that God was still in control and that God was going to use this in some way, even if he didn't want him to, even if he wished he never had to go through this. That God can use this pain and this grief to shape us 
more like him and into more of a beautiful version of who God has called us to be. As I look around the sanctuary today, I know that there are many of you who are thankful and for whom this season is a wonderful thing. But I also know that for many of us, if not most of us, that there are, we find ourselves in a season of winter. And I want you to know that in the midst of that, even when you cannot see God, when you cannot feel God and you feel like you cannot hear Him, that He sees you. You have not been forgotten. You are loved by Him. That He is with you even now. And as we go through this, might we be shaped in even more beautiful ways not despite the pain that we endure, but because of it. And in so doing, might we become a people who know how to patiently endure the things we understand and the things we do not. May it be so. Amen? Let us pray. God, as we enter into this literal winter season, we are reminded that there is a beauty to it. Snow, and the way it lays across trees and grasses. But we also know, Lord, that there is also loss and pain. There is darkness. There is bareness. There is vulnerability. So I pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the midst of this. Help us to understand that even when we cannot see you, that you see us. That there is purpose and meaning that can come from this suffering. May we trust in you. In your name we pray, amen.